that was a very, very significant time. Those of you who participated realize that. We were witnessing something God was doing. Now we sit back and wait for the answers, right? Because he will honor the prayers of the saints. Thank you, Becky, for being responsive to the Holy Spirit. I was a meeting, in a meeting this week for the Faith Giving Sunday that's coming up next week. You have, uh, in your mailboxes, you've received a letter about it. If you haven't received a letter or for some reason you don't have a mailbox and you'd like a letter, there are letters at the welcome desk back here that you can get that tell you all about Faith Giving Sunday and what it means. Something that uh, I'm sure that Pastor Wally instituted here and it's been, uh, it's, it's, it's stood in good stead for many years in helping the church take care of financial commitments. But in any case, someone mentioned positive things in that meeting that were going on at Elam and the things that indicated a certain level of enthusiasm. And I asked, uh, okay, what's, what are some of these things? And here's a short list of what I got in response. Attendance seems to be up. It's deer hunting season, so there's a few empty seats today. But attendance is up. Giving is up. Missions seems to be getting a new uh, fresh breath of wind in its sails. We sense the Holy Spirit's presence. This, this really took me back a little bit because you see, during the worship services, I have my back to you. I don't know what's going on behind me. You could all leave and I wouldn't even know it. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, everybody sat down and I didn't. But Tom Ganser was saying in this meeting that... Uh, he looks out during worship service and he sees people entering into worship with a heart, heartily entering into worship. Sometimes hands are raised and people are expressing themselves to God. Not that that's new, but it's uh, like a fresh breeze again. People are taking on new ministries like the ministry for this prayer vigil that took place last week at the Rotunda at the state capitol. Uh, like Julie um, Schumann's ministry, it's not her ministry alone, but one that God put in her heart and she's implemented it, outreach to single moms in the area. There just seems to be a fresh breeze of enthusiasm. And of course, this is built on an 18-year ministry of, of a solid uh, underpinning by Pastor Wally. But we can thank God for all of this. The question is, who knows what God has in mind for Elam? We think he has something in mind. We think he uh, hasn't brought this church through a hundred year history just to let it languish. We think God's got big plans for Elam. We'd like to believe that. But there's one thing for certain, whatever it is that God has in, in mind for us, it's going to take more than enthusiasm alone, alone to make the most of it. We know this, don't we? As important as enthusiasm is, it's got to be matched with other things in order to maximize our influence. Some time ago I was reading through Paul's letter to the church at Corinth and I was just struck with these words. It just, it, in fact, it just sort of popped into an outline for me. Uh, I, I guess you, that goes without saying, right? That's what preachers do. But uh, Paul's words to the Corinthians help us know with what we should match our enthusiasm. So because next week is Faith Giving Sunday and you've got a lot of thinking to do and some praying to do and some commitments to make, some decisions to make, I thought we'd hang our hat today in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. So I'd like to turn your attention there, if I may, please. 
What is it that we should match this enthusiasm with? There are at least four things. We should match our enthusiasm with responsibility. Let's talk a little bit about what a good giver does. A good giver is marked by willingness. Willingness. They are ready. Look at verse 2 of chapter 9, 2 Corinthians. For I know your eagerness to help. Paul writes to the church at Corinth. I've been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year you and Achaia were ready to give. And your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. They were full of what somebody called cheerful resolution. Let me give you a better expression. They were full of anxiety. They were anxious, not in a way that denoted a lack of faith, but they were anxious. Not anxiety, I said the wrong word. Anxious. They were anxious to be a part of what was going on. You see, Paul was in the process of taking up a collection for the church in Jerusalem that had fallen on hard times. And so where did he go? He went to other churches. People with whom they were related by faith. And he talked to them. And this letter to the Corinthians is a part of that whole process. Paul tells us that a good giver is moved to concern. Now this is not illogical. When you and I sometimes hear a need, we're moved even to tears. We're so caught up in trying to be a part of meeting the need. You ever been there? We're filled with what I would call a spirit of want to. We want to be a part of the answer. I'm going to tell a story of one of my daughters. I won't tell you her name, but her initials are Sarah Gallagher. (laughs) She's the one sitting here with a red face right now. Talk about being moved. Sarah was working in downtown Minneapolis, and it was December, and she had just gotten her Christmas bonus. It happened to be a, a, a cash card for somewhere. $100, though. And she had to stop on her way home that night from work at Walgreens, and she went to a Walgreens she wasn't used to going to. It was in a different neighborhood. Had to pick up a few things. She went through the checkout counter. She noticed a checkout girl uh, dutifully doing her job, but something kind of resonated with Sarah's spirit about this girl. She didn't say anything to her. She went to her car. She was getting in her car. She was going to go home. And the Holy Spirit began to drop the bomb. Give your cash card to that girl. She said, this is silly. I no. It's just a passing thought. Hold on for a minute and it'll go away. But it didn't go away. It grew. She said, I, 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 it's in the car. I'm in the car. It's cold out. I don't want to go back in the store. She's busy anyway. She had all kinds of reasons why she shouldn't do this and didn't want to do it. And not only that, but what would this girl think of me? I walk up to her and say, hey, I, by the way, the Lord told me to give you this $100. You could see that girl rolling her eyes all over the store, couldn't you? She sat in her car. And she had this wrestling match going on. And finally, the Lord won. And Sarah got out of the car, went into the store, and gave that cash card to that, that girl. Has never seen her since, but just felt such a strong impulse, more than an impulse, a conviction, born of the Holy Spirit, that this is what she should do, so she obeyed the Lord. 
Now, not all of our experiences are that dramatic, but that just draws a heavy line under the, under the fact that as a good giver, we are ready for action. We want to be involved. We're anxious to be involved. We have the spirit of want to. This is what Paul is saying was true of the Corinthians. Now, their enthusiasm may even infect others. You see, we've just read verse 2 of chapter 9, but take your Bibles and look back a little bit at chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. Listen to what Paul says. Something for which the Corinthian church was responsible. He's talking about the churches in Macedonia, which is an area north and a little bit west of where Corinth is in Achaia. Now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overcoming joy, overflowing joy, and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. In the midst of a very severe trial, uh, I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. This is what happened in the Macedonian churches. Who was responsible for it? The Corinthian church. Their example motivated those in the Macedonian church who were poor people. But they wanted to be a part of the game too. They wanted part of the action as well. The potent example of the power of influence is, an illustrated, is illustrated here. Good givers infect others because of their own enthusiasm. Very often. And they're motivated by need and opportunity and not selfishness. That characterizes a good giver. Look at verse 5 with me if you will. I thought it necessary to urge you brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you have promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. They had a generous gift ready, a bountiful gift, the NASB puts it. And he didn't want them to give it grudgingly. He didn't want them to give it uh, feeling as though they were forced to give it. This is what typifies a good giver. They're ready. Their enthusiasm may even infect others. They're motivated by need and opportunity, not by selfishness. And a good giver is marked by actions, their actions. Look at verse 3 and 4. I'm sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, Corinthians, but that you may be ready as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. See, there's an obvious problem that Paul sees here, at least potentially. And that is that the Corinthians could be ready emotionally. They could have that spirit of want to in place. But they, it's possible they, they could also be not ready practically. Ill-prepared practically in reality. This earmarks a lot of people. A lot of people. They talk a good game, but they never put their money where their heart is. They mean well, but they never get around to it. When I was in California, I was a youth pastor in Fresno, and um, 
big church, big youth group. We had a girl in our youth group that was one of the leaders, and she was a great girl. Her mom and dad, I think that they must have married late or just had a hard time having a child because they were a little older. But her dad was so excited about what was going on in the youth program. And he was always talking to me about what he was going to do to help the youth program. The problem is he never did it. He was going to do this for the youth program. He's going to do that for the youth program. And I love the guy. He's dead now. I love him, the memory of him. He was a wonderful man. But he never got intentional about what he talked about. And after a while, he'd come to me and he'd make these promises. And I'd just sort of roll my eyes and say, well, thank you. I appreciate that. I knew he had good intentionality or he had good intent. He just wasn't intentional. Good givers are marked by their actions. So we should match our enthusiasm with responsibility. Are you enthusiastic about what's going on at Elam? Are you enthusiastic about the fact that God has a future for Elam? You should match that enthusiasm with responsibility. There's something else we need to match that enthusiasm with, according to this passage. We should match it with generosity. You see, let me read verse 6. Remember this. This is a great statement. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. A good giver understands the concept of giving. Hear me, church. The concept of giving is this. It is not losing. It is sowing. Sowing. Some years ago, I was in a free church ministerial meeting me and about 600 other guys. And they'd chosen a group to speak to us about church finances. And we were all listening intently, hoping we could learn something to take back to our churches. One of the things they shared with us, this group that was presenting, was what they called the 20-30-50 syndrome. Here's what that means. In any, and these were evangelical churches that were surveyed now in terms of uh, the homework they had done, and then they gave us a report on it. In any given evangelical church, 20% of the people give 80% of the funds. 30% of the people give 20% of the funds, and this will blow you away. In any given evangelical church, 50% of the people give nothing. I was dumbfounded when I heard this. I just assumed that all people gave something, that God had gotten a hold of our hearts and our pocketbooks as well as an expression of our hearts, and we gave not only coined life, we gave coin, but not so. In any given evangelical church, 50% of the people give nothing. Then they cited two reasons for, this to happen, for the, why this happens. The first, in many cases, people have not learned yet to trust God. They see their money once given as gone, given away lost. They don't see it as invested. Another reason is they do not perceive, catch this now, they do not perceive that the church needs their money. I got to tell you, when they announced this to this 600 group, this, path, this group of 600 men, the place broke into uproarious laughter. How could anyone think that the church doesn't need money? How do they, what do they think it takes to keep the lights on and the heat on and, and to sustain all the programs in a church 
implements, etc., etc. But then they gave some reasons. And this was mind-blowing to me. One of the reasons that people choose not to give or not to give much is that often churches, when they set their budget, they base that budget on what they expect to receive, not upon what they hope to accomplish. And people in the pews are not naive. They look at the budget and they say, well, the budget's about the same as last year. We're going to accomplish about the same as we did last year. I'm not motivated to give. Or maybe I'll give to that television evangelist or some other ministry somewhere. We can see Paul's admonition is timely. Giving, like sowing, is investing. Now what farmer would answer a question like this? Why do you plant every spring like this? Well, you know, I just love to be out in the field. I like the smell of that new turned soil. I like the wind in my face. I even like the rain in my face. I'm a farmer, so I sow. Or what farmer would answer that question like, why would you, uh, why do you plant every spring like this? Well, my dad taught me to do that, so I just kind of do it automatically. When spring comes, there's something within me that moves me to the field and I sow. Or it's just what farmers do. No, you wouldn't answer a question like that. Why does a farmer sow? He sows for a harvest. He is investing he trusts that when he plants in the spring, he's going to be able to go back in the fall and harvest all of that. It's an investment. A good giver understands the rule of like return. Sowing is not losing. Sowing is potentially reaping. Investments like sowing yield something. So the obvious question, at least obvious to me, what will sowing reap at Elam? What does sowing reap at Elam? Perhaps one of the things it might reap in the future would be a facility that will help us more effectively facilitate ministry. Do we need one? <laughs> oh, brother. We don't want to become building poor. We don't want to finance away our future ministry with a new building. We're not trying to build a monument to an architect. But I'll tell you something. Yesterday was a case in point. We had the celebration of the home going of a saint of God, but we had to go to the Baptist church to feed everybody because we couldn't facilitate them here. Do we need a facility that might facilitate greater ministry? Now, you've already heard my feelings. I've already shared my feelings with you just moments ago or seconds ago on the idea behind a building. We're not building a monument to anybody, but could we more effectively facilitate ministry if we had a better facility? Maybe the future holds that for Elam. Or how about the ability to implement ministry by being able to staff for growth? Church growth analysts have done a lot of homework on what causes a church to grow. It's a soft science, this thing of church growth. And they say that most churches are understaffed. They're not staffed for growth. I would include Elam in that list. They're staffed to maybe, maybe support what they have, but they're not staffed for growth. Would sowing allow us to staff for growth? Or would sowing allow us to do a better job of equipping disciples, training to, them to make a difference in more lives? Would sowing uh, make us stronger and more effective evangelistically here as well as around the world? I mean, the list goes on, but the, 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 the word sowing here will reap a local church that is, better be able, uh, that is to be better used by God. 
That's the point. So let's not let anything, including short-sightedness, keep us from investing. Let's not be a part of the 50% who gives nothing. Let's get in the game. Let's be intentional. I want to quote John Calvin at this point. He says, Whenever fleshly reason calls you back from doing good through fear of loss, we should immediately oppose it with this shield. But the Lord declares we are sowing. When you give through the ministries of Elam Mission Church, you're not losing your money. You're investing it. You're not giving it away. You're sowing it. There will be a harvest. Praise God and pray that God will keep all of us faithful so that there will be a harvest. Eight-year-old Frankie was going to go fishing with his daddy. He was so excited about it. He'd been looking forward to this for weeks. Saturday morning came, he got up to get ready, and it was raining out. And he was grumbling. He was a little mad, even at God. In fact, he was overheard to say, It's not fair, Lord. seems you'd know better than this. Frankie had an attitude. Well, it cleared up, and they went fishing, even though they shouldn't go fishing after a big rain. And even though they went fishing after a big rain and shouldn't have caught anything, they did fairly well. And that night over a fresh, freshly uh, grilled piece of fish, Frankie's daddy asked him to lead in prayer and say grace, and here's what he included in his prayer of grace. Lord, if I sounded grumpy earlier, it was because I couldn't see far enough ahead. Wow, what a statement. Good givers are people who can see ahead. They know what investment does. They can match their enthusiasm with generosity. There's something else we should match our enthusiasm with. We should match it with responsibility. We should match it with generosity. We should also match it with resolve. Look at verse 7. Each of you should give what you've decided to give in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The source of giving, you ever thought about this? The source of giving is not the purse. The source of giving is the heart. It's not your purse. It's your heart. A good giver thinks through his commitments. He scrutinizes the purpose so as to give purposely, so as to give generously, giving as much blessing as he possibly can. Now notice what the motivation isn't. We're not to give, one version says, grudgingly. The NIV says we're not to give reluctantly. We're not to give as though under compulsion, as though we were forced to give, pressured to give, as though we were cornered when we had no alternative. No, no, no. A good giver gives out of a sense of resolve. He gives out of a sense of exhilaration. He gives cheerfully, the the text says. He's motivated to give. Now let's be careful here. We don't want our motivation just to be all emotion laden. We don't give just according to how we happen to feel at the moment. But emotions do play a part. It's an attitude which says, God, I want to participate. God, let me have a part. God, I want to be included too. Let me give too. It's that spirit of want to all over again. That's exhilarating. We've got to remember, we can't do it without God. And God won't do it without us. Let me tell you a story. 
story takes place right around the time of the Great Depression in this nation, back in 1929. This guy, a successful businessman, had given thousands of dollars, thousands of dollars, to help build a church. I think it was the church he attended. And then the crash came. And the guy lost everything. Lost his business, lost his means of income. He lost, as so many people in this country did, he lost everything. Somebody said to him, you know, it's a shame that you gave all that money to start that church. If you had that money, you could now bail yourself out in your business. He said, no, I'd have lost that in the, in the crash too. He said, as it is, the only money I saved was the money I gave to that church, to build that church. It's now in the bank of heaven, yielding interest, which will accumulate into, throughout eternity. Hundreds have come to Christ through the ministries of that church building help facilitate. Now that's a, that's a cheerful, exhilarated giver. A person giving out of resolve. A person giving out of purpose. Quite often when talking about money in the church, somebody will ask me, how much do I give? How much is enough? Sometimes they ask it with an edge to it. So what do you want, preacher? As though it were my money. How much do you want me to give? I can't tell you how much to give. But I can tell you where to start. We have phenomenal information on this in the Old Testament. They gave in increments of tenths. They gave a tithe. In fact, they gave three and a half tithes per year. So it seems like what they did under the law, we ought to be able to use as a benchmark for where to start under grace. Start with the tithe. Don't put a cap on your, on your giving. Oh, I'll give the tithe and no more. Some, some people, God has blessed in such a way they've given far beyond the tithe. But it seems logical that a tenth is where to begin. And you say, well, wait a minute. If I can't live on 100%, how in the world am I going to live on 90%? And all I, all I can say to that is, try it. You try it with the right spirit. You try it with the right attitude. God will reward you unbelievably. I'm not going to say you're going to become rich, but he'll allow that 90% to go further. And you'll also be, know that you're investing in the bank of heaven. You're making a difference in the lives of people's eternal state by giving to a ministry that's productive. Giving to a ministry that's going to do something well with your money. But don't take my word for it. This thing about the blessing that comes from giving. Let's listen from a couple of veterans in this church who've learned through their own experience what it means to tithe. Paul Dietrich's going to come and then after him Mike Kreckelberg. And they're going to take just a couple of minutes to talk to us about what it means in their life. What tithing has come to mean in their life. One of the ways that the Bible has changed me is in my giving. Uh, before I was knowledgeable about the Bible, I was reluctant to present the tithe. And then I learned that the Bible contains more than 2,000 verses which relate to giving and to money. Now, since most of us grow gradually in our giving, that was true for me also. Donna and I increased our giving at 1% per year until we got to 10%. But I still wrestle with giving because I know God wants me to grow in this area. Uh, the Bible teaches that brokenness is a prerequisite to blessing and usefulness. No one ever achieves 
spiritual greatness or the spiritual goodness of giving until he has fully surrendered himself to God. And God has done this kind of work in my life. When I was the chairman of the church, I frequently used opportunities to encourage you, to make you understand, or to help you understand how your investing has made a difference in the life of the congregation. For example, I wanted you to know that the benevolent offering was used and, and was being used compassionately and generously toward those who were in need. Whenever I heard from our missionaries who said that they could not complete their ministry without the financial help of Elam, I tried to pass that along to you. It's true that 20% of Elam's budget goes to missions. And also we tried to encourage you that during the most recent recession, a survey of all Minnesota churches showed that giving had declined in 43% of them. And that was not true here at Elam, and I commend you for that. As Russ is mentioning, giving generously is addressed in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. In that familiar verse in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, verse 7, talks about giving with uncontrolled happiness. Our gift is to be given in uncontrolled happiness. The verse also suggests that God will not be pleased with the gift, no matter how large, if the gift is given grudgingly. Donna and I give our gifts in a determined way which is proportionate to our income. I do pray over our gifts, and I believe that our worship service should further emphasize that giving is a spiritual act of worship. Donna and I have been the recipients of much generosity in the church in ways that I really can't say, but we want to express our appreciation to those of you who remembered us recently at the time of Donna's mother's death, and you who responded with gifts and comfort and encouragement. I know that you follow the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. As the Bible says, though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor, so that you and us, through his poverty, might become rich. I want to follow the example of my Savior's giving. For our sake he became poor. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Now Mike Kreckelberg, the man who drove Diane to her knees... He's going to come and share a little of his experience in terms of tithing. I think the last time I had a message on giving, uh, we missed a sermon. Um, But Russ said he's got an awfully big hook, so if it gets too long, he'll he'll use it. Um, And I don't know how in two minutes you can say anything or everything that needs to be said about giving. Uh, There's just way too much. Uh, So I'm going to try to just talk about uh, when we first decided to give and and what God uh, did with that. Um, And I'd like to start by saying I've had 40 years in in finance. Uh, That's what I do for a living. And I've seen absolutely zero correlation between any financial principles I've learned uh, in giving. When we first started uh, giving, I I know I'd I'd see people put five or ten dollars in a plate, and I always thought, man, those are rich people, that they can actually throw that much away, and and they had that extra. Um, As we became Christians and they started talking about um, things in the Bible, I realized there there was a huge disparity between 
our giving, which I think was maybe a dollar, you know, whenever, uh, not all the time, and, and what they were talking about. They talked about the tithe, and um, I, I had no idea what the tithe meant. They just talked about it a lot. And I, I think what the verse that we were focused on um, was Malachi 3.10, where it says, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I won't throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Um, I figured there's no way I could properly understand that verse, that it really didn't quite mean what it said. Um, but I, I was, we just were committed um, to give something. And to give something beyond our ability to give, which wasn't hard, because it was interesting. I remember just before we had this conversation uh, between me and my wife, um, it was either before or after she had said she needed to go to the store and, and get some food and milk for the kids, and I said she couldn't. We didn't have any money. Um, and then we talked about giving. Um, and and we, we decided to give, I remember it was, the amount was $100, and I don't remember if it was per week or per month. My guess would be it was per month. Um, but whatever it was, and I don't remember if this happened before we actually gave the first amount or shortly thereafter, um, but again, I remember I, I worked in finance, and I was approached by a doctor at our work, and he wanted to know if we wanted to take care of turkeys. And, and of course, you know, my background was in finance, not turkeys. Um, so I was kind of interested because, you know, we, we were financially strapped. And, and he says, oh, and I said, well, where would we put them? And he says, well, I'll build a barn for you. And I'm going, okay, this is, this is pretty cool. And, and, and so um, to say that the Lord gave us so much more than that little bit we were starting to, to give to him was an understatement. And, and I can just say our whole life has been marked with um, the Lord out giving anything that we've even attempted to give in, in everything we've done. Um, my understanding of, of giving has changed as I've learned more uh, about Scripture. And, and right now, I, I think our focus is on um, Jesus. And um, if he lived in America, what would that look like? If he lived in, in, in Cocada, what would that look like? Um, and trying to adjust our finances around that. And, and I haven't grasped it all. I, uh, I, I just, you know, lots of things in Scripture. But the one thing I've, I've come to the conclusion on is Jesus didn't have a 401K and he didn't have health insurance and everything was okay. And, and just how does that apply to me? How does that apply to how I live out my life here in the United States? Uh, and again, I, I, I'm searching for that answer. I'm not saying I've got it. Um, but I think there's a lot to be found in, in just living a life of faith. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. If you ever get a chance to travel with Mike, take advantage of it. He is a hoot. <laughs> he has the most wry sense of humor. He told me when I asked him if he'd be willing to talk about tithing, he said, uh, yeah, but I don't know that I believe in tithing. And what he meant by that was not that he didn't believe in giving a tenth, but he believes in not stopping there. 
And I, I agree with that. There are people who are in a position, God has allowed them to be in that position, they can give well over a tenth. So let's not look at, at it as a limit. Let's look at it as a threshold, a beginning spot, a beginning point. So we should match our enthusiasm with responsibility. We should match it with generosity. We should match it, as we just heard, with resolve. Let's determine to do what God would call us to do. And then lastly, according to this passage anyway, we should match our enthusiasm with God's abundance. Now this is more the result of giving for the giver rather than the motivation and the how-to, but it's important to note just the same. A good giver is a recipient of God's ability. A good giver is the recipient of God's ability. God's power operates in our giving. Look at verse 8. God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. You notice those inclusive terms? All, all, every. All things, all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. The point here is we can't outgive God. He always keeps us supplied so we can give again. And that's the reputation of the man who fears God. Look at verse 9. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. A good giver always has something to give. Look at verse 10 and 11. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Notice a couple of things here. Notice first of all in verse 10, the latter part, how giving is equated with righteousness. Let me just say this point blank. Giving is a righteous act. It's not something we're caught into. It's not the dues we have to pay. I had a guy that I led to Christ. He was dying of lung cancer, and he was uh, a godless character. But God really got his attention when he was ill. I led him to Christ, and he began to come to church. And we always took our offering, as we do here, at the end of the service. He jokingly told me one day, I was a little late for church today. I thought I might get in and out without paying, but then you took the offering at the end. He was joking, but there are people who do look at it that way. If they could get by without giving, they would. But giving is a righteous act. It's a part of what God makes us when he declares us righteous. So we need to be responsible in this regard. Notice the ultimate end of our giving. It's others. See it in verse 11? You'll be enriched in every way so you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, implied through what we're going to do by collecting this offering for the church in Jerusalem, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. They gave, those in Jerusalem thank God. Just think of the times that's happened at Elam. You gave, those on a mission field gave thanks to God. You gave, those who had no meal until you stepped up gave thanks to God. You gave, and children who would not otherwise hear the word of God, heard the word of God, and they gave thanks to God. We give God gives the thanks. That's as it should be, right? 
So if God has smitten your heart with enthusiasm for serving him, for giving yourself in a variety of forms, including your money, I think Corinthians helps us today. Let's make sure our enthusiasm is well matched with responsibility, with generosity, with resolve, and with God's abundance. Let's pray. Father, as people have discussion around their kitchen tables this week about how much you would have them give over the next year to Elam, may they realize they're not giving it to Elam, they're giving it through Elam. They're giving it to you. You gave it all to them to begin with, and now we have the opportunity of giving some of it back to you. Fill our hearts, Lord, with a sense of responsibility, generosity, and resolve. We pray it in Jesus' name. And now for the Lord's tithe and our offering that we're going to collect even at this moment, we pray that you'd bless it. Multiply the effectiveness of it. Use it for your glory. Because we give, may others rejoice people who find Christ as a result of our giving, people who grow in faith as a result of our giving, people who at, at very practical levels through the benevolence offering that's going to be received today, we pray, dear Lord, that they would thank you for the food that they're given, for what the benevolence offering takes care of in their life. It might be the payment of an electric bill. No matter what, we pray that people would ultimately thank you. It's with that spirit that we give today in Jesus' name. Amen. So we wait upon you now for the Lord's tithe and your offering. There will be a benevolence offering received today as you leave the door, as, as you leave the sanctuary in a few minutes. <laughs>